Yes. Oh, what great, great, great songs. Great truth. Well, I thank you for being here this evening as we embark on another study of another book of the Bible. If you take your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of James. The book of James. And we'll look tonight at chapter 1, verse 1. James 1, 1. As I mentioned this morning, I have studied and, and worked through the quite a few first chapters of Isaiah. That's my goal someday is to start the book of Isaiah and, uh, and preach through that with you. Um, but, but right now, I think this is just a great book for our church. And one of the reasons why we're doing this, the emphasis of prayer. Uh, James has much to say about prayer, asking God for wisdom, praying for the weak, praying for the wandering. But it, it is really such a practical book. It is full of wisdom, uh, day-to-day life as a church family and, and just living in this world. And so tonight, we'll look at the beginning of the text. Uh, again, the introduction. Uh, who is the author and who are the recipients? And so if you have your uh, notes in front of you, we'll, we'll kind of we'll follow that outline as we, again, look at the study beginning in the book of James about faith, the fact that faith does work. Trusting in the Lord, faith produces great fruit, and, and out of it should flow a life of good works. Here's what the Word of God says. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. All right, let's pray. Father, we are so excited and so thankful to be together as a body of believers, as a family, brothers and sisters who love the Lord Jesus. We're so thankful for the word that you have given to us by inspiration, every word without error, all of it profitable for doctrine and for correction and rebuke and instruction in righteousness, that we might be fully equipped for every good work. Oh, Father, we pray that this book will equip us to um, a life of good work and um, testimony and faith in Jesus Christ. So we are so grateful that the Holy Spirit has given us this book of the Bible, and we pray now that the Spirit of God who dwells in us will enlighten and strengthen our minds to understand and to receive the Word of God, and that it would transform us. It would change our heart, our desires, our thought patterns, and out of it would bring honor and glory and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ forever and forever. Oh, we thank you, Father, for the Word of God, but we thank you for the Savior which died for us. He died for our sins and rose again. What a testimony of a great Savior. What a great faith that we have. We do pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Until then, may we be obedient to the words of this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, James. Well, we need to first of all understand who our author is. We'll spend most of our time tonight looking at this person named James. We know that the author is James by the very text itself, but there are a couple of men in the Bible who this could be. So we're not definite, but I think we could say with almost 100% assurance which James it is. But the first James it could be is James, the son of Elphias. We know that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, uh, the Lord Jesus chooses 12 apostles to be his men that would follow him and learn from him. One of the men was James, was James the son of Elphias. Apart from that, we don't, we don't know anything about him. Now, can you imagine? We know much about the Apostle Paul's life, the book of Acts and all the journeys and all the letters he wrote. We know a little bit about Peter because Peter wrote two letters to those who were scattered. We know a little bit about James and a little bit about Jude. Nothing about most of the 12. Do you realize that if the Holy Spirit had saw fit to record the lives and the ministries 
of a man like James, the son of Alphaeus? Do you know what kind of fascinating scripture that would be? To see what he did, where he preached, all, all those things like we have of Paul and Peter, um, we don't have that. All we have is his name. And because this book of James simply says James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, most likely it's not James, the son of Alphaeus, who was obscure and unknown. We have, we have nothing in the scriptures except his name. It could be another James, a more famous James. We know him as James, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, who had a brother named John. Now, it, it could be this James. There is a thing, though. We know that James was very passionate about the gospel. And in Acts chapter 12, he was killed for his faith. He was martyred. What, the first of the 12 to be martyred. So already, James the son of Zebedee, has lost his life by Acts chapter 12. And when we study the book of James here now in the weeks and the months to come, I I think we'll see that um, it it couldn't be that James. It appears that he died probably before this text was written, when you kind of put all the pieces together. But there is a third James that I want you to consider as the author of this text, the human author of the text. This would be James, the half-brother of Jesus. So let me take you through the testimony of Scripture regarding James, the half-brother of Jesus. And this is who I think wrote this, wrote this text. First of all, you don't have to go to all of these verses, but just be reminded, uh, you might want to write them down, but be reminded of, and maybe do your own study of this man, James. Because in order to understand the text, we want to understand who's writing it. We want to kind of almost feel like he's in the room with us. And then we want to know who he's writing to. So when we read the text, we can put it in its proper context. So James, now listen, we know that Mary, being a virgin, was, um, was announced by an angel that she would bear Jesus, the Messiah. So here we have a virgin named Mary that would bear Jesus in a city called Bethlehem. We know in the text of Scripture, Luke 2 and Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus was the firstborn of Mary. Now, that firstborn implies that she had other children. Otherwise, you could simply say that was her only child. But Jesus being the firstborn, born of a virgin, is God incarnate. Then it says, Joseph did not know Mary until after the birth of Jesus. Well, we know from the text of Scripture that Mary and Joseph had their own children. And, and so we know that um, the next text I want to draw your attention to is in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. In Mark chapter 6, let's turn there. That we, maybe we will turn to a few of these. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Jesus is in Nazareth. Nazareth, Of course, he was raised in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth with his half-brothers and half-sisters. The Gospel of Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country. This is the area of Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed at his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James? Notice, James is mentioned first. Most likely, then, he is the oldest in the family. Uh, Jesus, of course, being virgin-born and the oldest. Out of the children of Mary and Joseph, it's James, Jose, Judas, and Simon. And, not, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Can you picture the scene? You have the synagogue, Jesus teaching um, with powerful words, 
declaring that he is the Messiah. And they say, but wait a minute, we know this Jesus. He grew up in our village. We watched him day after day, walking around, going to school, working with his father, uh, working and learning carpentry. And we know his brothers and his sisters. Certainly this can't be, this can't be the Messiah. This could not be the, the Son of God. And so they were greatly offended at the Lord. All right, so here we have a, a very clear that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Looking um, at John chapter 7, let's turn over to the Gospel of John for some more insight into the brothers' belief. How did the brothers feel towards Jesus? John chapter 7. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Of course, the religious Jews being down in Jerusalem where the temple was, they very much sought to kill Jesus. So Jesus stayed up in the Galilee region. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And we know that this is one of the feasts that all the men, the Jewish men, would go to Jerusalem uh, every year. And so here it is, the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall at hand. Verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Wow. So Jesus grew up with brothers and sisters who did not believe that he was the Messiah, God in the flesh. Now, that would be very hard to understand. I mean, we can relate to that. You are with your brothers and sisters, and your oldest brother says that he is God in the flesh. We can almost understand the problems that would cause. And here, the brothers say, we know Jesus, if he goes down to Judea, is going to be killed because he's proclaiming that he is the Son of God. Jesus, go down to Judea. Show yourself openly. Well, why? What happens if Jesus shows himself openly? He will be killed. I think his brothers were just saying, Boy, you have some bizarre behavior, Jesus. We're not sure if you're right in the head. So just go down there and make everything out in the open. And if they kill you, they kill you. If they don't, they don't. Whatever type of thing. The brothers did not believe. But then something happens. Go go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Something does happen. At some point, James, this half-brother of Jesus, believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking at verse 7. On the day of resurrection, Jesus appeared to many people. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. He was seen by 500 brethren at once. And then verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So James is picked out out of everybody, besides all the apostles and Peter, that Jesus would appear to James. So you can imagine, maybe before the crucifixion, maybe at the crucifixion, we don't know when, but at some point, James stops being an unbelieving brother to understanding that his oldest brother, Jesus, is God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. And when Jesus rises from the dead in body form, he makes a special appearance, a very special one-on-one appearance with James. And you can imagine James falling before Jesus' feet saying, my Lord and my God. Isn't that incredible? An unbelieving brother, now a believer. But not just a believer. Take a look at Acts chapter 15. Let's go back to the book of Acts. I guess I am having you go to all of these verses. Acts 15. 
This is the Jerusalem Council as the church is growing, and the Jerusalem church now is like the mother church, and it is, uh, it's a large church, mostly a Jewish church. Take a look at verse 13 with me. Acts 15, verse 13. There's a, a council, there's a group of men that are trying to understand the relationship of Gentiles with Jewish people in the church. How can Jews and Gentiles, with very different culture and tradition, be one? How could they be one in the body? What do we do? And we see in verse 13, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. James the apostle has already died in Acts 12. This is Acts 15. James is now a leader in the Jerusalem church. Interesting, isn't it? That out of the 12 apostles, now James is dead, James the apostle. Who should lead the Jerusalem church? Not one of the apostles, but it's the half-brother of Jesus. So the half-brother of Jesus is now the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He's leading the assembly, he's pastoring the assembly, he's teaching the assembly, and the other apostles are helping and in other various ministries. So James has come from an unbelieving brother to now really a great leader in the church. Not only a leader in the church, but Gal- and we won't go to this one, Galatians 1.19, it says when Paul gets saved, he goes up to Jerusalem to meet the apostles, and he meets James, a pillar of the church. One of the men that kept the church stable and solid with good, solid teaching. So this is the James that writes this text, this, this letter of the Bible. It is a, a, a man who grew up with Jesus, listened to Jesus, watched Jesus as a child, and then when he's older... He trusts Jesus as a savior, sees the resurrected Jesus, and now he's the leader of the church and a pillar in, uh, in the early church movement. Wow, praise the Lord. Now let me ask you, what's, what's your life like? I mean, we went from unbelieving to believing, and really, there should be growth like James. We should be growing and be pillars, solid men and women, boys and girls, who stand for the truth and build up the church. I mean, this is what we are called to do, build up this assembly of believers, and that's exactly what James does. Now, let's talk about some, number two, some unique things about James. First of all, his writing. The book of James is incredible. There's n- it's, listen, number one, he, he writes short, direct statements. Very short, direct, powerful statements. Secondly, he commands. He has such a commanding language when he writes. In the book of James, there's 108 verses. Do you know how many of the 108 verses are commands, imperatives? 54. 54. Half of the verses in the book of James, James says, do this, do this. You must do this. You must do this. 54 commands in this text. Well, the writing of James is of the highest Greek caliber. This is amazing. It is like the best and the finest of the Greek language in the book of James. Not only that, it is most likely the first book in the New Testament written. So before there was a gospel, before there were gospels written, before any of Paul's writings, the book of James was written. And it is also the most Jewish book of the entire New Testament. Being so early in the church age, remember the church was mostly Jewish people. Um, James is a Jewish man. His, brother, his half-brother is, is Jesus. And so everything he writes is just so full of Jewish, uh, Jewish symbolism, Jewish text. All right, that's his writing. What about his spirituality? Well, we know this. He was a godly man, and he was a great pastor. We know that for sure. But Hegapus, in 
180 AD. So you're talking a hundred and some years after all of this. Hegapicus, or I don't know how exactly how to say it, he said this. James is James the just. He's a just man. But James has knees like a camel. You may have heard this. He had knees like a camel. If you've ever seen camel knees, they're really bony and calloused and because of, of how they sit. It seems like James, according to tradition, prayed so much that his knees began to look like camel knees. That's, a, that's actually a compliment. But again, that's just tradition. Um, Hegapus also in 180 said, this James, the half-brother of Jesus, was a, was a Nazarite. Now again, this is tradition. It says he never cut his hair, he never drank wine, he never ate meat, he never touched a dead body, and he never bathed. That's, that's just what they wrote in 180. I don't know how that would go with the rest of the church, but that's what he said. And they said this man was a godly man. What do we know? We know that God greatly used him. I can tell you one thing about his spirituality. He was a humble man. How many of us, if Jesus was our half-brother in a human relationship, if we had the opportunity to write a letter, we wouldn't include that a few times. I, I'm Brian, the half-brother of Jesus, and, and I'm going to make sure everybody knows that about me. But in the book of James, there's no reference to that. None at all. That's his spirituality. Um, what about his knowledge? He quotes five times from the Old Testament, and he uses many, many Old Testament illustrations. This man is very knowledgeable about the Old Testament scriptures, a student of the Word of God. Not only that, as you read the book of James now, in the weeks and months to come, write, get a piece of paper and put it in your, in your Bible. James uses 30 illustrations from nature. He uses a mirror. He uses a boat. He uses a horse's bridle. He uses a fire. He uses, he uses 30 illustrations from nature to bring about our spirituality. It is so easy to read the book of James because he's talking about day-to-day things that we all are familiar with, and he draws from these natural things, um, things of nature, great spiritual truth. So that's his knowledge. Uh, not only this about his knowledge, he writes about trials. He writes about anger. He writes about widows and orphans. He talks about our speech, the desires of our heart, wisdom, how wealth should affect us. He talks about partiality and how much he hates partiality. He talks about sickness, judging others, peacemaking, and he talks a lot about prayer. Do you know what he doesn't talk about? Doesn't talk about the cross. Doesn't talk about the resurrection. Doesn't talk about justification or anything like that. Why? Because the, the readers he's writing to, they're assured of the cross. They're, they know about the crucifixion. They know about the resurrection. They don't have questions and doubts. They're dealing with some other issues. We here at Faith, we don't have a question about the cross, justification, glorification. We don't have an issue about the resurrection. But we need this part. This is going to be good. This is going to, going to be very healthy for us. So what's his purpose? Can you picture this? His purpose in writing yeah, this is going to all kind of join together. I'm going to go lose, lose my outline right about now. So who is he? Well, I'm going to skip to who he's writing to. James is writing to 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. We know the 12 tribes are Jewish, right? They're Jewish people. But we also know 15 times he uses the word brethren. What does brethren imply? Believers or not believers? Believers. So he's writing to Jewish believers from all 12 tribes. Wait a minute. I thought there were 10 lost tribes. Not according to the Bible. Sure, they were lost in the sense they were taken into captivity, but they still had their identity with one of the tribes. 
and they were part of the church. All 12 tribes were part of the church. But, but James is writing to believers who are Jewish, because remember, the early church was mostly Jewish, but they were scattered abroad. They were dispersed. Well, the Jewish people have been dispersed many times. In the Old Testament, many times. Rulers would come and disperse them and all of that. We know that. I think the dispersion was Acts 8. Let me just review this with you. In the early church, there was a deacon named Stephen. Stephen came before the Jerusalem council with his face shining like an angel, and he gave a succinct, succinct, accurate history of the Old Testament. And because of his faith in Jesus, they stoned Stephen to death. And Saul of Tarsus was there consenting to the death of Stephen. And then in Acts 8.1, it says, Great persecution arose against the mother church, Jerusalem. And so you have 20,000, by that time in Acts 7, you have 20,000 believers in Jerusalem, maybe more. It could be up to 50,000. All right, They're meeting together, most likely in different spots because of the size, worshiping, um, prayers, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the apostles' doctrine, right? Persecution comes. Who's in charge? James, the half-brother of Jesus. What does he see happen to his congregation? This group, they have to leave because of persecution. These people were killed. Those people had to run. His congregation begins to dwindle. People are running left and right. They're scattering all over the countryside, all over the land, because of the persecution against Christians. Now, James has a pastor's heart. What's he going to do? Does he care about the people who left? Oh, you bet he does. And after some time, he hears that there's trouble, not about the cross or the resurrection, but just about their life in Christ. And I can imagine James one night taking out some parchment and some pen, and he begins to pen saying, James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, greetings. By the way, many phrases in James are found in Acts 15. Who's speaking in Acts 15? Who's writing letters and speaking? It's James. So because of the common, the common languages, the word greeting here, it's only used in Acts 15 in the whole Bible. So the same word for greeting, it's a strange word for greeting. And James uses it here, and James uses it in Acts 15. So I think it is the same James. But you can almost imagine he would be writing and saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you suffer through various trials. He knows his church family has now suffered great trial. And he says, I want you to count it all joy. Why? Because going through the trial is producing patience in your life. It's causing you to endure and to suffer for the name of Jesus. But then this suffering with long patience is producing maturity. That's Christ-likeness. And James says, that's the goal. And if God uses suffering to produce the goal, count it all joy. Don't count the circumstance joy. It may be harsh and, and difficult, Count the outcome joy regarding the various trials. Can you almost see him writing that? And then he says, listen, faith without works is dead. It is, James 2. Faith without works is dead. Why? Some of these persecuted believers had great faith in the Lord, but they were afraid to show it in their works. So you can imagine James, the pastor, he's saying, people, faith is great. You need it. But without works, it's useless. And then you can go on and you can imagine uh-oh, when the church is being persecuted, they're going to fight against each other. Be careful because the tongue is like a little fire and a little fire will set a whole forest on fire. So a little tongue in this church, oh, it's going to set the whole church on fire. 
Don't go there. And so he writes that. Then he says, you wealthy, stop being miserly. And, and you weak, we need to pray for you. And the one that's wandering, we're going to catch you and bring you back. So this book is so pastoral, but you have to understand why it was written. It's a pastor of a Jerusalem church who is Jewish. And he's writing to the Jewish congregation that has now been scattered all over abroad. And he is concerned about their spiritual life. You read, that, you read this book like that. You, like you're one of the ones who are just, you're suffering. And you realize these are words of comfort and encouragement, strength and hope. I'll tell you what, it makes the whole book come alive. You realize then what's going on. Well, that's his purpose in writing. What about his death, letter E? Well, according to tradition, by the same hippo, uh, Hegapicapus, A.D. 180, according to the same man in ancient tradition, James was in Jerusalem as a pastor, and they brought him before the council of some type. And they said, James, what is your understanding of Jesus? Well, James is his half-brother. James says before the crowd, Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He is the one true God. And they took James, by tradition, they took James to the top of the temple walls, just like, remember when Satan took Jesus there? They took James to the top of the temple walls, and they pushed him over. And they watched his body fall and hit, and then they went out and they beat him with clubs. That's, that's the tradition from 180. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, a pillar in the church, a leader in Jerusalem, writing this pastoral letter so that the saints could be encouraged to live for Jesus, he dies a martyr's death. I mean, that's tradition. Well, we see now already who the recipients are. The 12 tribes. They're scattered. But now how does James identify himself? I love this part. And this probably is the most applicable for tonight. James 1. He says, James, a bondservant of God. He doesn't say, the half-brother of Jesus, my best friend. I mean, I grew up with the man. You guys never knew him like I did. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, I am not the brother of Jesus. I am a slave. This word bond slave is the word doulas. You've heard me talk about this word before, doulas. It comes from a verb that means to bind, to bind together. It is used for one whose will is bound up completely in another. It is a slave by birth, not by purchase, but by birth. When James was born again, his relationship with Jesus was now not half-brother. It was, at the moment of spiritual birth, I'm your slave. If you were a doulas, you never worried about what you were going to eat. You never worried about where you were going to sleep. Your master provided it all. You had only one consuming thought on your mind as a doulas. It wasn't what you eat, wasn't where you sleep, it wasn't anything like that. It was, what is the will of my master? I must do it. It was absolute obedience. When James uses this word, it is a huge word. He's not saying, I'll serve Jesus with part of my life. I'll serve Jesus when I feel like it. I'll serve Jesus only if things are going my way. No, he said, from the time of my spiritual birth, I am one whose will is bound up in another, I can do nothing but obey my master. I will do nothing. I will go outside of none of his parameters. If I want this and he says no, I will not take it for myself. 
I will not trespass the boundaries of my master. My whole life is, is corded or bound tightly to my master. This word doulas is used of Moses. Remember, Moses in the Septuagint was called a servant of God. Same word, doulas. It was used of Daniel. Daniel being a servant of the Most High God. It's used of Joshua and Caleb, the two men who went into the promised land and captured mountains for themselves. It was used of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were servants of the Most High God. It's used of Job, a servant of God. Isaiah, a servant of God. And now, James says in the New Testament, probably first in the New Testament, I am a doulas of God. Isn't that awesome? He says, I'm going to follow the same record of the godly men and women in the Old Testament. You see, that's, I think, what's missing in Christianity today. We want Jesus, but we want our own will. We want our own life. We want everything that we want. And then we, as long as he's with us, we don't care. That's, that's what we want. But if he asks for absolute, complete consecration, who would go that far to say, Lord, I am yours. I am thine, O Lord. Whatever you say, I will do. Wherever you go, wherever you send me, I will go. I mean, there are things that I do not want to do. But if the Lord says, Brian, you must do them, am I willing? Am I willing to say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. Remember, I, okay, so I've already been studying Isaiah. So a lot of Isaiah is going to come out even though it doesn't fit. Um, so, and I, listen, I, okay. oh, man. But Isaiah, when he starts his ministry, Isaiah is a young man, I think a teenager, do we ever think of Isaiah being like the age of a Ben Nicholson or a Seth or an Ethan? Do we ever think of Isaiah being like that? Isaiah's ministry, see, I'm already preaching Isaiah. Isaiah's ministry goes through many kings. And if you follow the ages of, of the lengths of all those kings and their reigns, then Isaiah has a ministry of like some 60 years. And see, I'm preaching Isaiah. What's going on? So um, let me tell you about this. I, I think Isaiah was so consumed with the, with the world and the political games going on. I'm trying to think of how I'm going to get out of this. <laughs> Let me finish, okay? Let me finish my thought. So, because Isaiah is a doulas of God. So, picture this. There's political, you know, Assyria is, 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 uh, is growing. Egypt is declining and Israel's in the middle. And King Uzziah is on the throne. And I think Isaiah must have been thinking... As long as we have our king, we are safe. King Uzziah, he'll take care of us. I know he'll take care of us. We've got Assyria. They're growing. Egypt, they're kind of waning away. But we really need King Uzziah. And in the year that King Uzziah died, it says that in Isaiah 6, can you also imagine Isaiah's heart as he realizes, really, the hope for the nation died. It'd be like if we had a great ruler, a really great president, a Ronald Reagan, for you conservatives, um, a, a really good, solid president. And when they die and, and no longer give us leadership, we'd be like, oh no, what could come next for our country? Not much good, maybe. That's what I think how Isaiah was feeling. And then he saw not Uzziah on the throne, he saw Jesus. Okay, now I'm getting farther. In the Gospel of John, it says, Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw Jesus on the throne. A pre-incarnate Jesus. And the, the robe of Jesus was filling the whole throne room. And then uh, an angel took a fiery coal and put it on his lips, consecrated his lips. And then God said, after all of that, God said, together, the Godhead, here we are. Now, 
who will, go, who, will, who will we send in our name? Who will go for us? We need somebody to represent us to all Israel. Uzziah's dead. Enemies on all sides. Who will stand up for us? And what does Isaiah say? Here am I, Lord. Send me. See, this is what I was getting to before I get into chapter 1 now. Um, Isaiah was a bondservant, a doulas. When God opened his eyes to his glory, to the glory of Jesus, and then consecrated his lips, then, then God says, okay, who will, who will I send? Who will go for me? And right away, no question, Isaiah says, my will is bound up in yours, here am I send me. You know, you know what God says after that? God says, Isaiah, go. But in preaching, they will not hear. How do you like that for a message? Isaiah, preach your heart out, they're not going to respond. Their ears are going to be hardened. Their eyes are going to be blinded. You'll preach, 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 and they'll never respond. But do it anyways. And what does Isaiah say? Okay, I'll do it. And he does it for 60 years without complaint. Okay, I'm, I'm no more on Isaiah. Now, now that's going to be in the fall. Um, this is, I think, where James is at. He's writing and he's saying, listen, people, you need to be a bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are co-equal. Jesus is God. And you need to be his slave. And whatever he says, you must do. He's setting them up for the whole book. So when James says, my brethren, do not be partial with one another. Do not say to one you like, come and sit up here. And for you I don't like, go sit back there. Don't, don't, Don't play games like that. Don't be foolish with your tongue. Guard the lusts of your heart and remove them. Have the wisdom that's peaceable that comes from above. And you wealthy, crack open your wallets and be generous. You know, he goes, he is just so direct. I, th- I think he would have just been, you know, for him, black and white. It's just, this is the way it is, just do it. And now you can begin to get an understanding of who James was and who he's writing to. And then he says, greetings. I greet you. You know, it's not personal because he's writing to many, many people. He doesn't say, greetings, Claudius. Or he just says, greetings. He wants everybody to read this. And we are privileged now at Faith Baptist to enter into the study of this text about, um, about a pastor just revealing God's truth for our life. Practical living. I'm excited. And if we end up in Isaiah, we might. So just be, 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 be aware of that as we go on here. All right, some applications again. What are some? I would say this. Read the book now with understanding. Just read the text over and over. Maybe just read chapter 1 over and over and over. You could almost commit it to memory. If you read it often enough, you begin to get a pattern. You know, it's counted all joy, then you have sin and temptation, and then you can move right on. Then you have um, be doers of the word and not hearers only, but before that you have do not uh, be slow to anger. You have all sorts of issues. And so you can almost just read it over and over and begin to memorize it. This would be a great book to have memorized, at least the content of every chapter, if not word for word. Very doable, very doable. But that's it for tonight. Be a doulas. Be a bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to enter into the study of this book, just to get a feel for James, the half-brother of Jesus, and how he was born again. He saw the risen Savior. He became a leader in the church. He was a pillar of the early church, one that could be relied upon, that could um, stand for truth and not be shaken. And then as a result, as his congregation is scattered because of great persecution, he pens this letter by inspiration of the Holy Spirit 
And he encourages and strengthens and comforts all of those believers. And here, 2,000 years later, we are being encouraged and comforted. And so I pray we would take heed to this word, that we would truly be your bond slaves. By our spiritual birth, we have no other will but yours. And we know you'll provide our food, our clothing, our transportation, our homes. You'll, you'll provide everything for us. We trust you for that. We don't have to seek after that. We want to seek after you, a relationship with you. We don't want to seek after doctrine. We want to seek after a personal relationship, intimacy, and fellowship with you. You are a great God and a great Savior. You are worthy of all of our devotion. Please, Father, purify our church, strengthen our church, and use the text of Scripture and the Holy Spirit to bring about spiritual growth. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.